Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode 520 of So You Want to Be a Writer, the podcast that's all about writing and publishing. My name's Valerie Koo. I'm CEO of the Australian Writer Centre, the world's leading centre for writing courses, and I'm your host. We talk about all things to do with the world of writing, publishing, and how to succeed as an author or writer. Happy New Year! I hope you've had a lovely start to the new year so far and that you did exactly what you wanted to do over the holiday period. And still, some of you still on holidays. In fact, I was inspired by an article written by Sandy Summons in The Guardian called Why I Skipped Christmas and Why You Might Like to Try It Too. Sandy's actually part of the Freelance Writing Masterclass program here at the Australian Writers' Centre, and I love her take on why you should just do all the things you want to do over the holiday period. I did a couple of family things, but a long time ago, I decided that I wasn't going to rush around during the holiday period, and I wanted to spend Christmas Day exactly how I wanted to. Same with New Year's Eve. I used to feel pressured by friends who wanted to go out and have a big celebration with all of the crowds on New Year's Eve. And after a while, I just stopped because I couldn't be bothered negotiating the crowds and walking for ages. Oh my God, my feet hurt. I must say though, I do love fireworks on Sydney Harbour, which of course is a quintessential New Year's Eve experience. It's literally one of my favourite things, not the New Year's Eve part, the fireworks on Sydney Harbour part. So I am very lucky that where I live now in the northern beaches in Sydney, there's fireworks nearby, which I can see from my balcony. So I don't feel like I'm missing out that on that so much. Anyhow, back to Happy New Year. I hope you're relaxing, but also using this time to make plans and dream big on the year ahead. Yes, dream big. Why not? Why bother dreaming small, right? If you want to write that book this year, plan that. If you want to simply start a regular writing habit, start that. Grab yourself a journal and get writing. Do your morning pages. If you're not familiar with these, these are the three pages of writing that Julia Cameron suggests that you do every morning from her book, The Artist's Way. If you're not a morning person, like me, I'm not a morning person, just do them whenever. Don't think that just because you can't do them in the morning, they're not going to work or they're not worth doing. You can do them any time of day and they're still very worthwhile. But why are they worthwhile? Because the idea is that you get rid of the gunk that's in your head. You're not meant to be writing your great novel. You're not meant to be creating beautifully crafted phrases. You're just meant to be writing whatever comes out of your head, even if it's writing something like, I don't know what to write and I feel silly writing this. Just write that and see where it takes you. And make sure you understand that no one is going to read this except for you. It's incredibly freeing. And it's very useful in gaining clarity on a whole range of things and solving problems and resolving issues that may currently seem like a muddle in your brain. And it's surprisingly effective. As you can tell, I'm a fan of morning pages, although I don't do them in the morning, but I still call them morning pages because that seems to be the universal universal term for them these days. Anyhow, let me move on to my writing tip this week. This is a writing tip that could be handy for anyone writing historical fiction or non-fiction. You may need to know if a word was common at a certain period of time. It's usually a good start to look at contemporary texts like novels or newspapers, but another thing you can do is check a dictionary from that time period. 
that will actually give you the dictionary definition of the word at the time, which may, of course, have changed over the years. Now, I found these a few weeks ago when I was trying to see if my word of the week, which was haptic at the time, had been common before the rise of smartphones. So I went looking for old dictionaries. I found two that are fully available online, one from 1913 and one from 1828. Unfortunately, they're both Webster's, which is the American dictionary, so there will be regional differences, but you can find them at websters1913.com and webstersdictionary1828.com. I'll put them in the show notes. And by the way, haptic wasn't in either dictionary. And if you do find an old Australian or British English dictionary that's searchable online, do let me know. Now let's move on to our competition this week. Oh, this is a great book. I have three copies of Blurb Your Enthusiasm by Louise Wilder to give away to you. A dazzling dictionary of book blurbs filled with writing tips, literary folklore and publishing secrets. This week's giveaway is a joyful celebration of books, the perfect gift for bibliophiles, word lovers and anyone who's ever wondered, should you judge a book by its cover? The book is Blurb Your Enthusiasm by Louise Wilder and here's its own blurb. We love the words in books, but what about the words on them? How do they work their magic? Here is a book about the ways books entice us to read them, their titles, quotes, covers, and above all, blurbs, via authors from Jane Austen to Zadie Smith. Writing tricks, classical literature, bonkbusters, plot spoilers, and publishing secrets. It's nothing less than the inside story of the outside of books. It answers questions like, why do some authors hate blurbs so much they burn their own books? Should all adjectives be murdered? Is blurbing sometimes maybe lying? Is it true that, checks jacket, you need an animal on a book's cover to make it a bestseller? (laughs) What are the most terrible blurbs of all time? Join Penguin Publishing word wizard Louise Wilder, 5,000 blurbs written, mostly avoiding the phrase unputdownable tour de force, to discover why we should judge a book by its cover. Even this one, it's an unputdownable tour de force. <laughs> All right, so I have three copies of Blurb Your Enthusiasm to give away. Just go to writercenter.com.au slash win. Entries close Monday the 9th of January. And don't worry, if you're at that URL in the future, there'll be some other fantastic book for you to win. That's writercenter.com.au slash win. And now, are you ready for the word of the week? The word of the week this week is operose. That's O-P-E-R-O-S-E, operose. It's an adjective meaning done with or involving much labor. Now, the Merriam-Webster Dictionary says, operose comes from the Latin operosus, which has the meaning of diligent, painstaking, or laborious. That word combines Opera, meaning activity, effort, or work, with osus, the Latin equivalent of the English ose and ous suffixes, meaning full of or abounding in. 
In its earliest uses in the mid-16th century, the word was used to describe people who are industrious or painstaking in their efforts. About a century later, the word was being applied as it more commonly is today as an adjective describing tasks and undertakings requiring much time and effort. Thank you, Merriam-Webster Dictionary. So you could say the thousand-piece puzzle was an operose undertaking. And that was the word of the week. This podcast is brought to you by the Australian Writers' Centre, a world leader in writing courses. If you're serious about completing your own novel manuscript, immerse yourself in our inspiring and motivational six-month program, Write Your Novel. Filled with weekly workshopping and practical lessons, you'll receive advice on structure, dialogue and balance, as well as tips on publishing. This online program fits around your weekly schedule and you'll find extensive personal feedback from your tutor and classmates throughout the program. Find out more at writercentre.com.au slash novel writing. Now let's move on to our writer in residence this week. Nikki Crutchley's latest novel is In Her Blood. She's also author of To the Sea, both published by HarperCollins. Prior to this, she actually self-published three police procedural novels set in New Zealand, which Nikki says were instrumental in her being discovered by her agent who ultimately secured her deal with HarperCollins. Thank you so much for joining me today, Nikki. Thank you for having me. Uh, I'm very excited about your book, In Her Blood. There's so much I want to talk about, about your journey to publication and the various choices that you made along the way. But before we get into that, um, for listeners who don't yet have uh, have their hands on a copy, what's it about? Uh, so In Her Blood is a story of two sets of sisters uh, set over two different timelines. Uh, in the present timeline, Jack is returning home to her hometown uh, because her sister Charlie is missing. And in the past timeline, which is over 20 years before, um, it's the lead up to Paige Gilmore's disappearance. And that's told through uh, the point of view of her sister, Lisa. Um, and it's a story that is set at an old 100-year-old hotel, which is uh, Paige and Lisa Gilmore's uh, home. Uh, and it's a it's a story of love, but also a story of loss and grief and obsession. Uh, and yeah, all, all set uh, at this 100-year-old hotel, which makes it very atmospheric, which was the plan, yeah. And what gave you the idea for this book? Um, there's always a few things, and it's always a little bit hard to pinpoint, but I was listening to a podcast. Uh, actually, it was an Australian one, Australian True Crime. Um, I think Emily Webb, and I can't remember the other woman's name, um, but this one was on stalking and obsession, and it wasn't it wasn't so much the stalking part, but the obsession, and not so much about that kind of male-female romantic obsession we think of, but the female-female obsession, and I thought that was quite interesting. Uh, and then there was probably just a couple of little ideas about character, uh, the two main characters, Jack and Charlie. I just had two ideas of two sisters. I quite like the idea of writing about that. Um, and the idea of a fire, which is uh, a little bit of their backstory. And all these little, little ideas came together. And it probably wasn't until I found my setting 
um, that that they all came together. And the setting is um, this this old hotel, and it's actually based on a real hotel um, here in New Zealand. Um, I'm not sure if your listeners will know the Waitomo Caves, but um, the glowworm caves are, are quite uh, famous here, where tourists go. And it's a really tiny little settlement in the North Island, Central North Island, and there's this big, beautiful hotel that sits on top of the hill. Um, and it's actually about 15 minutes away from my hometown. Um, so I grew up with it just down the road. And um, so, yeah, it's this big, beautiful 100-year-old hotel that's now closed down. Um, but I knew it from my childhood. And there's rumours that it's haunted and things like that. So I thought, perfect, perfect place to set a psychological thriller. Did you always want to write? Like, to give us a bit of a potted career history so far mm. up until this point. Yeah. Well, if you ask me if, when I was between the ages of seven and 12, what I wanted to be when I grew up, the answer would have been a writer. But um, things get in the way a little bit, I think, and I feel it was probably more of a romantic dream than than any kind of ambition. Uh, but after high school, I uh, went to university and I studied sociology and English, um, really just because, I mean, English always interested me, but um, I didn't really have any clear idea at all of what I wanted to do. Uh, and I, my um, boyfriend back then, who's now my husband, um, we went on our, our um, OE, uh, which all us Aussies and Kiwis tend to do after university. And I worked um, at Oxford University Press, uh, which always sounds really impressive, but I worked in the journal subscription department doing credit card <laughs> payments. Um, and I came back home and I thought I'd quite like to work in libraries, so I ended up studying um, a diploma in library and information studies, and from there I kind of found myself in specialist libraries, uh, not really on purpose, those were just the jobs I got, so I ended up working in a medical library, and I went back overseas and worked in the English Heritage Library, and when I came back home again, I worked as the acquisitions librarian in um, Waikato University. And then, um, and there wasn't much writing being done at all. But did you but want to write still was, at that point? There was still that real um, dream, I think. And it was funny, whenever we used to go on summer holidays and walk along the beach, I'd say to Simon, oh, wouldn't it be great to live by the beach and and write a book? And But, you know, I was saying all this stuff, but never actually, actually doing it. And it wasn't until I had my two girls, um, so they're 15 and 13 now, that I kind of started writing for them. And I wrote them little fairy stories and things like that. And that kind of got me back into writing again. Um, and at that time, I was still at the uni and I had two young kids and I quite liked the idea of working from home. Um, and I came across a course uh, that was a diploma in proofreading and copy editing. So I did that uh, and I started my own freelance proofreading business. And I think between that and writing for my girls, I had a little bit more spare time. Um, and I kind of realised writing for children wasn't what I wanted to really do. Um, and, and at that stage, probably 2014, 15, I thought I'd give um, writing a book a go, as you do. And I kind of just dived in, but didn't tell anyone. I just gave it a go. And, um, and over that time, I did a, a diploma for uh, a creative writing diploma that was very broad as in um, it was a year-long course and it focused on novel writing, short stories, poetry, screenwriting. Um, but it definitely got me back into the routine of writing, having to, you know, do assessments and things like that. And I had a brilliant um, tutor in Tina Shaw, who's a, who's a wonderful novelist here in New Zealand. 
and yeah, that was it. <laughs> so then you end up writing um, your manuscript for Nothing Bad Happens. Mm. What happened then? So I wrote Nothing Bad Happens here and over a good two or three years with no great plan. I, I First I wanted to do it to see if I could actually write a book um, and I could. Uh, didn't mean it was good or anything, but um, I kind of wanted to take the next step. So I submitted submitted it to a couple of publishers here in New Zealand. And we really only have two major publishers in New Zealand. Um, and I got pretty swift rejections. Um, and I can't remember that being heartbreaking or anything because I honestly didn't expect anything from it. But then, from then, I kind of realised I needed to put a bit more into this. And I got it assessed, paid for it to get it assessed. Um, as it was, it was way too short, um, so I added to it. Like The assessment was really valuable. Um, but I didn't bother submitting again and instead started looking at self-publishing, something I knew nothing about, but there's a huge amount of information out there. Um, so this was, yeah, this was back in 2017. Um, so I kind of just did things bit by bit. I It's probably because it was such a major thing to be doing, and I didn't... I, of course, I wanted it to be successful, but I, I probably kind of minimised it a bit. I thought I'd self-publish it, maybe get 100 copies printed, friends and family would buy them, and I'd be happy. Um, but it, it got a little bit bigger than that, which is great. <laughs> <laughs> Tell us what happened. So um, I printed it, published it in 2017 with help from my husband, thank goodness, because... Um, yeah, as much as I love writing, I'm I'm not a publisher and I'm not so good at that that business hat part of it. But he did all the formatting and layout and uploaded it onto Amazon for me and things like that. Um, so I also got um, copies printed. Um, I decided against a distributor just because, um, I mean, everyone that self-publishes knows how expensive it is. And it's just the bookshop takes a bit of your money and the distributor takes a bit of your money. So I just really wanted to hopefully break even one day. So I decided to distribute myself. Um, maybe not the best idea. Not sure. Um, because? It, um, you, ju you just can't get it out there enough. I mean, I got it... Um, into bookshops around me. I live in a small town called Cambridge. Um, there's a bigger city, Hamilton, half an hour from me. Um, and But it never got in, up into Auckland. It never got down into the South Island because it really only went as far as I could go. Um, but it did sell and it also got, um, it was a finalist in the Niomarsh uh, Book Awards, which are our crime and thriller uh, writing awards, which was just the most amazing thing to me ever because I really... Like I set out doing this, um, as we all know, writing is really, really solitary, uh, but so is self-publishing. And you really need to have a little bit of confidence there to do it. Um, but when I got that that um, news that I was a finalist in the awards, I was like, oh, I did write a, a good book and, you know, people are enjoying it. So, yeah, that was a big deal and probably um, gave me the confidence to, to go on. So you self-publish and, um, uh, and would you describe that as a good experience? Yes, it was a good experience. But for me, part of that dream that I had since I was seven was that I wasn't publishing my own books. I was, I had a, you know, a publisher, I had a contract and I would write a book or a manuscript and someone would pay me. Oh my goodness, you know, like <laughs> amazing. Mm. Um, instead of me shelling it, shelling out thousands of dollars, um, and they would take it off my hands and turn it into this beautiful book. So self-publishing um, 
it wasn't really the dream, but I wouldn't change anything because I feel I only got my book deal because of how I put myself out there um, with my self-publishing. Yes. So So we'll come to that because after Nothing Bad Happens, you then wrote and self-published two more novels, right? Yeah, that's right. Yeah. So why did you choose to continue to go down that path? And did you in the meantime submit those to traditional publishers? I So my next book was No One Can Hear You and I wrote that the following year. And to be honest, it was everything 100% to do with confidence and I was like, nothing bad happens here, was rejected, so why would I try? No one can hear you. So I thought I'd self-published and... So you didn't knew- even try No, I didn't. It. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe I'll do that part differently. <laughs> but um, so I knew how to self-publish now, so my poor husband was dragged into doing all that again. So I did that and I published No One Can Hear You uh, at the end of 2018. And around the same time, I got an email from Vicky Marsden from High Spot Literary asking if I wanted to be represented. Um, And she said, oh, would you rather stick with self-publishing? And I was like, no, I would love to be represented. (laughs) Um, And and there's not many uh, literary agents in New Zealand. There's probably only three or four, maybe, um, and, and I honestly thought getting an agent was just as hard as getting a book deal. So I was absolutely over the moon. So uh, Vicky quite liked my Miller Hatcher character from Nothing Bad Happens Here. So I was just about to start writing the second one, which was called The Murder Club. Uh, so she decided to start pitching that as I was writing it. And we got, she pitched everywhere, New Zealand, Australia, overseas, and we got uh a lot of interest from a publisher in the UK and it was just one of those almost nearly there but it fell down um, at an acquisition meeting. Um, So I kept writing it, Vicky kept pitching it, um, these two books and I kind of held on for a little while waiting to see if something would happen because we were getting really good feedback for both the books Um, but in the end Vicky said feel free to self-publish again and so I did. Um, and then it was that next bit. Did you want me to talk about? Yeah, absolutely. So that was three self-published books and yeah. then? <laughs> yeah, and then I I was actually going to start writing the third Miller Hatcher book. I had it all kind of planned out and I had an idea and I kind of thought, and Vicky agreed, um, she had pitched those two books everywhere and there wasn't really any point adding a third to the series when a publisher wasn't going to take on, you know, So that didn't make sense. So I thought I would write a standalone and I kind of thought I'd like to step away from that small town crime, which those three self-published books are about and give psychological thrillers a go. And I I just always love psychological thrillers. I quite like that. I love the twists and the reveals and the unreliable narrators and, and all that kind of thing. And probably a step away from, I guess, the, the cops and the detectives. And I feel yeah, in psychological thrillers, you're with the victim and you're with the perpetrator. So I wrote a book. Um, I had an idea um, and Vicky liked it. Uh, and so I started writing and that was called To the Sea. So Vicky submitted that um, at the end of 2020. Um, and quite quickly, we got um, rejections always mm-hmm. rejections. Um, but in, within a couple of weeks, HarperCollins Australia came back and offered me a two-book deal, which was Hooray! little, little <laughs> seven-year-old me was 
42 year old me was jumping up and down but yeah if seven year old me me could have seen that yeah I was just absolutely over the moon what did yeah. you do when you got can you remember when you got the news oh, I definitely remember and I always will I it was it was kind of this time two years ago so um both of my girls had finished school for the year or they had a half day but they were home and I was working I proofreading and I remember my daughter had her end of um, middle school dance that evening and we were getting ready to go to the hairdressers for her. And I got a call from Vicky and she told me the news and I cried and my daughters came over to me and they were putting their hands on my shoulders and like, are you all right? Are you all right? They could tell I was okay. Um, and I got off the phone and they said, did you get a book deal? And like even back then they were 11, 11 and 13 but that, like it was always talked about you know mum would love oh. a book yeah oh. and I said I did and but we had to go straight away to the hairdressers <laughs> and I said to the girls does it look like I've been crying and they're like yep <laughs> 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 but it was so great and then um Vicky emailed through while I was at the hairdressers emailed through um Catherine Milne's um, comments about how much she'd enjoyed it and comparing me to um, Daphne du Maurier and things like that. And I was just like, happy as How wonderful. So, so that first book that got you the two-book deal, mm. uh, that's also been optioned for the screen. Is that correct? Uh, no, not that one. My first one has been optioned. So nothing oh. bad, yeah, nothing bad happens here has been optioned for uh, TV here in New Zealand. So a TV uh, producer here in New Zealand optioned that, um, yeah, two and a half years ago, I think now. Yeah, these things take time. Wow. Okay. Yeah. So, <laughs> so then we've got HarperCollins, and now we, we you're on your second book. Yes. Um, yeah. So now that you have the benefit of hindsight, mm. would you have done things differently? Do you think that the self-publishing process was essential in ultimately getting you your book deal? I think my self-publishing process was essential in getting me my agent. So I think if I hadn't self-published, I don't think I would have got Vicky to represent me. So, and it all kind of, it's a bit of a domino effect from there. If I didn't have Vicky, Vicky wouldn't have submitted to HarperCollins. So I don't honestly don't think I'd change anything. I learned so much from self-publishing. And, and yeah, yeah, I think... I mean, I don't really like the whole regret thing and looking back, but, yeah, I 100% think I probably would self-publish still. Like, yeah, I learned a huge, huge amount. And, and like I said, Vicky wouldn't have discovered me, I don't think, um, without those books under my belt. And how has, now that you're with a traditional publisher, how has mm. the experience differed? It's been so lovely. There's probably ups and downs, mostly ups, I'd say, just because as I said, that whole dream, like I love the writing part, all us writers do, well, there's ups and downs again, but I love writing, I love being creative and I love uh, making up characters and stories and plots. Um, but it's just such a relief having self-published to know that when I'm done with the manuscript, I can hand it over to an editor that I don't have to pay for and <laughs> they do magical things. I think editors are the most amazing people in the world. Um, and just things like... Um, uh, book uh, the cover and things like that you know I was doing all that myself or at least 
contacting people and they were doing it for me um, and things like proofreading formatting and layout my husband is also relieved because he doesn't have to do that anymore <laughs> um, but yeah all that is all amazing and I think probably the one downside for me is the pressure and um, and it's not pressure from my publisher or my agent it's absolutely pressure that I put on myself it just feels a little bit no a lot different to um, self-publishing because when I was self-publishing I could do whatever I wanted. Like there were no timeframes. If I wanted to take three years to write a book, I could. Um, but there's timeframes here, obviously, and there has to be. Uh, and I'm very aware of that. But, um, so you combine this with your day job as a mm-hmm. proofreader. How do you structure your week? How do you fit in the writing time? What part do you dedicate to writing and what part do you dedicate to your day job? Yeah, I... Um, I don't really have a routine and I really should get one. Um, I think it's the fact that I'm probably freelance that makes things quite tricky. So, um, like, I can't really take sick days or holidays. When the work comes, I do it. Um, So it's quite hard to give myself writing days. But my work isn't full-time, so I try when I'm not proofreading, I'm writing is the, the general way it goes. Yeah. And are you already writing your next one? I am. So uh, In Her Blood came out just a couple of weeks ago uh, and I'm writing another one, but it's not contracted yet. Um, And I thought I'd be enjoying the freedom of not having been contracted, but now I'm just worried that I don't have a contract for it. (laughs) So I feel (laughs) I can't win. I can't win. Um, But um, it's kind of, it's a little bit of a step away from the psychological thriller like the last two and um, a return to kind of that small town crime uh, mystery. Yeah. But I'm How exciting! It. Yes, yes. All right, and we always finish with what are your top three writing tips for people who would love to be in a position where you are one day? But I'm going to say they don't have to be writing tips. If you've got tips about the publishing process, since you've mm. done both types of publishing, feel yeah. free to share that. Okay, I um, writing wise, I th- and it's nothing new, but give your writing a chance to breathe. I think it's so important. If you finish a first draft of a novel, don't sit down the next day, scroll up to the start and and start looking through it again. I think it's so important to leave it be, let it marinate almost. Because when I wrote, uh, I was doing this book I'm writing on now, uh, working on now, book number six, I started at the start of the year. And I'd written about 30,000 words. And then I got the structural edits for In Her Blood, and they were quite heavy structural edits. So I had to put book number six aside and work on uh, on In Her Blood. Um, so I had months away from this manuscript I was working on. And I'd learned things from In Her Blood. Um, and when I came back to it, I, I think I binned half of it and started again. So it's just that, that benefit of, um, well, learning something, obviously, from that structural edit, but just getting a bit of space between you, you and that that initial idea. So I think I think that's really important. Um, I guess from the self-publishing point of view, um, and also when you're going on submission, consider paying a professional to either get a structural edit, um, which I know can be expensive, but even assessments, um, which aren't quite as expensive. I think just getting someone, I mean, writers groups are great uh, and things like that, but just getting someone who's uh, totally separate, doesn't know you, uh, to give you 
feedback for me. I got that for all three of my self-published books and it was absolutely invaluable. Yeah. Um, And another one is um, I have a saying that I need to try and live by and it's called comparison is the thief of joy. So I have a really bad habit of comparing myself to other writers about, um, you know, you're on social media and you're like, oh, this is happening for them or that's happening for them. Why isn't that happening for me? So I think it's a a good idea to run your own race, stay in your own lane. I mean, have a think about what success is for you and not anyone else around you. Um, And comparing yourself to others never makes you happy. It's not a useful thing to do. So, yeah, I need to remind myself of that. That's brilliant. And on that note, thank you so much for your time today, Nikki. Thank you so much. It's been lovely chatting. I hope you enjoyed my chat with Nikki Crutchley. Now, did you know that American author John Steinberg, who wrote many famous novels, of course, including East of Eden, Of Mice and Men, The Grapes of Wrath, he liked to write by hand, that bit's not so unusual, but using pencils on yellow paper, and he's known to have gone through more than 60 pencils in a day. 60 pencils seems a bit excessive. Why? Well, because his writing was so small, he had to use ultra sharp pencils, but he didn't want to be distracted by sharpening his pencils all the time. So he would start his writing day with his ritual by sharpening exactly 24 pencils, which he then lined up in a box. And he would take a pencil, write four or five lines until the pencil was no longer sharp. (laughs) And then he would place that pencil in a different box and take a new sharp pencil and continue on. When all 24 pencils were done, he'd stop to sharpen them all and start his routine again. He would also write using pencils without erasers because he thought erasers were the ultimate lack of courage. (laughs) So I did the maths. If a pencil lasts five lines and there's about 30 lines per sheet of paper, that means he's changing his pencil six times per page around and 24 pencils will last about four pages. And if he does that, say, three times, which gives us 72 pencils, that's 12 pages of writing. When you break it down like that, it's not too crazy, although sharpening all those pencils would be a nightmare. All right, now that brings us to the end of this week's episode. Feel free to connect with me on social media. I'm at Valerie Koo on Twitter and Instagram, and I'm also over at ValerieKoo.com. Thanks for listening, everyone, and I look forward to chatting to you again next time. Thanks for listening to So You Want to Be a Writer. You'll find the show notes at writercenter.com.au slash podcast or sign up for our awesome and often hilarious weekly newsletter at writercentre.com.au slash news, where you'll find writing resources, giveaways, competitions, and much more.